It's the Last Call Podcast with Chris Michaels. Another riveting week of broadcasting brilliance in store for you. Good God Almighty. Does everybody remember on Friday the CDC finally said that they're going to be investigating the COVID-19 vaccines because they may cause heart issues in people above 65 years old? What about all of the athletes that we've been seeing suffering from the same kinds of heart issues. Now, the first question that I had with all of that is, why is the CDC getting involved with whether or not a vaccine should be pulled from the market? That doesn't make any sense because it's the FDA that puts all this stuff out there or at least authorizes these COVID-19 vaccines. Well, it turns out if you look at the CDC's website, you find out that the CDC can start auditing these vaccines and they use VAERS data, Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System data. We all know how sketchy VAERS data really is because VAERS data on average reports only 1 to about 5% of all cases involving vaccine adverse events. In other words, side effects like mericarditis, pericarditis, myocarditis, not mericarditis. <laughs> And also, uh, slight cases of death. So, if the CDC has to step in and look at that data, and knowing that that data is only 1-5% to of what's really going on, that must mean that something really, really bad is going on. So, the other problem with this is then where does the FDA get involved? And you find out from the CDC's website, which gives you a link to the FDA's website, that really the only way a vaccine is going to be pulled from the market is when the manufacturer decides to do so. It's almost unheard of for the FDA to say, no, we shouldn't be putting these medications or gene therapy platforms out there on the market. In other words, what this says to me is that every medication that's been pulled from the market more than likely was the result of some kind of lawsuit, class action or otherwise. So all of these people get together and they say, listen, we're going to sue the pants off you because of all the damage you've done with your medications and vaccines. So please uh, pull this from the market. And then more than likely, that's when the manufacturer pulls this crap. So the other problem with all of this is that very, very quietly over the weekend, between Friday and Monday, the CDC said, whoops, no, no problem at all. These vaccines are perfectly safe and effective. No need to worry moving forward. So uh, once again, you get the idiotic, ultimately completely compromised policies of the FDA and the CDC basically probably being bought and sold for big pharma. So this doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that it is potentially safe, more research has to be done, so on and so forth. And then you had Ed Dowd on the war room with Steve Bannon today over at Breitbart, whatever else he does. Ed Dowd has been very, very important when it comes to vaccine uh, I guess, literacy, for the lack of a better term, and what it means to have these gene therapy platforms injected into people uh, globally. And he said that he has contacts within the Biden administration, that they are trying to sideline sudden death syndrome. So if we're to follow the breadcrumbs here, we can all probably go in the same direction. And that direction being that sudden death syndrome, people just falling over and dying, 
probably has something to do with an injection of some sort. But, according to Ed Dowd and his contacts, the Biden admin is ready to declare an emergency and blame everybody keeling over on long COVID. And then this, climate change. That's right. <laughs> He's the <laughs> They're going to try to blame people keeling over on climate change. That must be it. Thank you very much. <laughs> so watch out for that pile of horse manure coming out. Over the next couple of days, uh, anyway. But has anybody seen what Steve Bannon actually looks like? I mean, I saw him on his interview with Ed Dowd, and he's there, and he looks like he just ran up eight flights of stairs after eating a 32-ounce tomahawk steak. I mean, he looks like he has the meat sweats when he's on the camera. And, and what's up with all the shirts he wears? He wears, like, 15 collared shirts. And it looks like he washes his face in Jack Daniels before he gets on camera. I mean, what is what, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> I mean, I can only imagine what his home looks like with pizza boxes and dirty plates and icky forks and knives all over the place clanging every time he takes a step. And <laughs> upturned pill bottles on the nightstand. <laughs> and probably... He's probably falling asleep with a bowl full of empty pistachio shells on his chest. Every time he wakes up from his sleep, from his apnea, and all these things spill all over the floor and in the pit. <laughs> I don't know. The guy needs to look a little bit better. He needs to look a lot less Ernst Hemingway and a little bit more, I don't know, sober. <laughs> so <laughs> okay, so I was supposed to have on a, on a guest... Matt from Cultivate Elevate, but it just doesn't look like it's going to happen. Uh, that was supposed to happen last week, but it just doesn't look like it's going to happen because of the um, the differences in time zones. So I'm just going to go into what I intended to talk to him about. So uh, Cultivate Elevate is a, a very, very large, or has a very, very large internet footprint. So he sells all, size, all kinds of supplements. And uh, he does dabble in the whole Tartaria thing. So if you don't know what Tartaria is, it is the mythology that there was a very, very large civilization that stemmed uh, from central Russia. Because on old maps, you see this territory called Tartaria. And then you see all of these cities on these old maps that are no longer there. So where did they go? The Tartaria thing also says that... More than likely, there was a mud flood that overran and in inundated all of the cities that you see and know and love today. And their evidence for this is that every time the streets in these cities are dug up, a lot of these buildings have what appears to be doorways and windows below ground. So this says to the Tartarian angle uh, that the Tartarians built all of these cities and then there was some kind of enormous mud flood and everything was demolished and then mankind ultimately re-emerged and in, uh, inhabited all of these uh, cities and everything else and rebuilt it all and so on and so forth. Now, some of the... I'm not a, a subscriber to all of this. I am partially, but I, I'm not completely in this camp like a lot of people. Uh, the, the first bit of evidence 
that the Tartarians point to is we've got all of these pictures of cities like Paris and Moscow and London from the early 1800s. And we don't see a soul in these pictures. So obviously this is a remnant of the Tartarian civilization. And so this is before humans went in to recolonize former owned Tartarian buildings. Uh, no, no. Here's your problem with that theory. Your problem is, is that cameras in the early 1800s had exposure rates of about 20 minutes. So if you want a city of 600,000 or 1 million people to appear in a photograph, you've got to get all of those people to stand still for 15 to 20 minutes. Good effing luck. It's the exposure rate in the cameras. Sorry, not going not gonna to go down that road. Then the other problem is, is that they say all of these landmarks are really Tartarian. Well, you got the... The Eiffel Tower in Paris. Oh, the Golden Gate Bridge out in California. Oh, then you've got other remnants across the... So you could find photographs of them digging the foundation for the Eiffel Tower. You could see them building it. You could find pictures of all of that. So that's that's where I really... I, I'm not going to go down that road because I don't buy it. There's There's too much evidence to say to the contrary. They also point to, and I'm not saying that Matt prescribes to Tartaria theory all the way through either. I'm just saying that he sometimes shares this kind of uh, material. And it's always interesting. It's always fascinating uh, because most of the time, the material that he shares brings up a lot of good points too. I don't know his personal opinion on it all. That's why I decided to have him on. Uh, but um, anyway, that's, that's the road that I go down. But they also reference... Uh, they also reference uh, the, all these pictures from the world's fairs from long ago. So they say, oh, these, these were here before the world's fairs were put out there. Well, th no, they weren't. They were built by certain architects because they knew that they were going to have a world's fair there. And they needed this ostentatious, over-dramatized architecture because it was supposed to be there for a couple of years, but it's really just a very, very, very elaborate facade on the whole thing. If you actually looked at the structure of these magnificent buildings, they weren't made of much. And so a lot of the people, not necessarily Matt, not, all these people believe that these were remnants of the Tartarian civilization. Well, no, it, it takes a, a Google search for two seconds, and you can find all the architectures, uh, architects that developed the architecture, that built all of the buildings for the world's fairs. So I'm not, I don't necessarily buy that, but this is where I do get involved in the Tartaria angle. Because what does this say to me on a grand scale? It says to me that there is a genetic longing to go back to a time that had these kinds of buildings that had these glorious, symmetrical, beautiful styles of architecture all across civilization. Compared to what we look at now, what do we see? We see these enormous blocks, enormous rectangles that are filled with concrete and glass and probably littered with cubicles and idiotic lighting so that everybody goes nuts when they're finished with the day. If you look up Rudolf Steiner, 
Rudolf Steiner is basically a, a, a Christian mystic, very, very brilliant, brilliant person. And he talks about some of the things that I've spoken about on uh, my podcast. He's long dead. I mean, so we're talking about uh, things from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, talking about the evolution of mankind, the spiritual evolution of mankind. Um, what was mankind like before they had a physical body, but were still uh, sentient in a more lighter form, and what it means to descend to an earth and then rise out of earth again, and all that stuff. So he's very, very metaphysical. And he brings up the notion that architecture is the physical representation of spiritual progression. That makes a lot of sense. Architecture is the physical representation of spiritual progression. So all of us out here that are critical thinkers and lovable fuzzballs, we see buildings and photographs from a time long gone. We see these buildings from the world's fairs. We see glorious, glorious monuments to times from long ago in the Romantic era, in the, in the Art Deco area, in the Art Nouveau era, right? Once I get to Dadaism in the 20s, and then we go into uh, all that nonsense of, of, of uh, you know, performance art. I mean, that's, that's where I punch out. I'm out of here. But all of that architecture, all of that beauty... It's resonating with us because we know that the human species can be better. And we know that the spiritual awareness of all of us out there needs to be better than what we're looking at today. So look at the architecture around you. For the most part, it's fairly ugly. Especially if you live in a place like New York where everything is full of litter and being busted apart. So that's where I get involved. That's where I sign up to this because I wouldn't be surprised if there was a civilization that was flourishing upon the planet and then was summarily wiped out for some reason. I wouldn't be surprised at all. I, I've probably found remnants of that in Arizona when I lived there for a while. And this concept that architecture resonates with you on your spiritual path that makes a lot of sense because people that are lovable and fuzzy and lovable fuzz balls, we like looking at glorious things. We like looking at beautiful things. We want that because our spiritual progression is so far advanced beyond the majority of the population that we know we deserve better than what we're seeing in cities like New York and cities like, I don't know, San Diego, because I went to San Diego not so long ago. I don't think I want to go back to San Diego, uh, at least the city proper. And another technique that I was going to bring up that Matt has done a, an extraordinary amount of work on is electroculture. I was going to talk about that too. So what is electroculture? Uh, easiest thing to do, you can go over to Cultivate, Elevate, on uh, on Instagram and uh, also on Telegram, he he does a lot of things there too. So he always is always posting fantastic things over there. But this is from the Gardens Trust dot blog, 
uh, and the, the article, oddly enough, is electroculture. So the, to give you the basic idea of what electroculture is, if you decide to get into horticulture, so you like planting things, if you wrap a copper wire or a silver wire, I suspect, or a gold wire, I suspect, around some portion of wood and essentially make an antenna out of it and you plant put it in the ground next to the seeds that you've planted your seeds will produce fruits and vegetables at a faster rate and they will be more abundant there will be more lush and it will be more productive for you now there's a lot of reasons to say why this is happening so on and so forth i suspect it has to go into the area of Wilhelm Reich, where you look at orgone energy, which is basically atmospheric energy, like the ether. If you go back in science before particle physics really demolished the concept of the ether, um, I suspect the ether is correct over particle physics. But it's the same concept. There is energy all around us. There is free energy all around us. So if we're able to channel that in some way, we can charge the soil and produce more uh, fruitful plants. So from this blog, electricity may be classed among special manures. And this comes from the 1700s. It started in France. And the wonderfully named, I can't pronounce this, Bernard Germain Etane de la Vie sur Ilon Comte de la Cipite. I don't <laughs> Good luck began some experiments watering plants with water which he described as impregnated with electrical fluid he published a 700 page long essay on electricity in 1781 so this goes way back which reported his findings that the germination of seeds and the sprouting of bulbs were quicker and when plants were electrified they grew with more vigor than usual then there was some other gent abbe pierre berthelon which included a description of the first electroculture tool. Now, you'll love this name. It was called the Electro-Vegetometer. He set up miniature lightning conductors to collect electricity from the atmosphere and then distributed the charge via wires across the garden. Think of what I described with Wilhelm Reich and atmospheric energy. Uh, the Earth Battery by Alexander Bain in 1841. Bain's device operated on the same principles as a modern battery, except the zinc and copper plates were put into the soil and connected above ground by wires. Plants grown in the area between the two plates grew faster and yielded more. In the 1880s, Professor Carl Selim Lindstrom of Helsinki University was a geophysicist. He studied the aurora borealis right there in your kitchen so that anyone can see. And he began to wonder if they had an effect on plant growth. This led him to start experimenting with the effects of atmospheric electricity on germination. Eventually, in 1904, he published Electricity in Agriculture and Horticulture, in which he offered his detailed findings that there was an increase of the harvest of every kind of plant which has come under treatment, but also has a favorable change of their chemical compounds, making them sweeter and their scents stronger. Agricultural Institute at Beauvau, under its director, Father Poland, 
devising an atmospheric antenna that he called a geomagnetifier. Installed initially in a field of potatoes and tubers, plants within its reach were greener, healthier, and produced more potatoes. Later, it was tried in the vineyards, and they produced sweeter, larger grapes and better wine. In 1936, the British Electroculture Committee destroyed pretty much all of its further development until David Kinahan of the Department of Science and Technology Studies at the University College of London researched the committee's work and came up with an interesting fact or two. Basically, the British government was uh, playing fast and loose with the publishing rules. What they essentially did was is that they didn't declare their findings secret or top secret. They just didn't publish them. Whoops. So he discovered that he, in the National Archives, that although their annual reports from the British Electroculture Committee contained many positive facts, these were never made public because from 1922 onwards, their reports were all marked not for publication with only two copies ever printed, one for the minister and one for the archives. And this work was never classified as secret. And all of this went away until 2006 or so, by, and a gent by the name of Andrew Goldsworthy, a plant biotechnologist from the Imperial College, put forward what seems to be an interesting explanation. In my words, uh, basically what he came up with, Andrew, was that studying plants in very, very dry environments, so like cacti and all of that, they need to react very quickly to any kind of rain because they live in an effing desert. So when it rains, they need to be able to absorb as much water as possible and bloom as quickly as possible so that they can germinate and spread their seeds. So what his theory is, is that when you put these kinds of devices in your garden, around your garden, above your garden, it signals to the plants that, oh, rain is coming. So if rain is coming, you better start producing and growing quicker because you need to make the best use possible for all of that rain that's coming in because you don't know when rain is going to be coming back. That's the basic gist. That also has to do with the electricity in the air around thunderstorms, just like Wilhelm Reich discovered. Uh, he, Wilhelm Reich, by the way, also said that the only thing close to the amount of electric power of a thunderstorm in his studies uh, was the amount of electricity emitted from the human orgasm. So the next time you're sitting there with your feisty digits or uh, diddling some fuzz, then understand that you've got the power of a thunderstorm quite literally at your fingertips. Going back to electroculture, though, this technology is very, very important. And it seems odd. It seems like nonsense. But go on over to uh, Cultivate Elevate on uh, Instagram, and you could see all of the results of electroculture. I mean, these plants are enormous. These plants pop up. What uh, Somebody posted uh, the other day, uh, they were growing garlic in, I think, Ireland or Scotland. And normally, 
It takes about four weeks for them to sprout. Well, they put three poles in their garden, and they had copper wiring that goes down to the soil. These things were up in 14 days. So there's something going on. I did a little bit more research beyond that. I didn't have enough time to put it all together, but it seems as though it could also have to do with uh, free electrons, if I'm not mistaken, um, moving through. So what produces a lot of free electrons? Copper is one of the best things. Copper is also a fungicide when it comes to plants, so it gets rid of fun fungus and all that. Uh, but also silver and gold uh, transfers free electrons very, very quickly and very, very readily. Uh, they're also wonderful conductors of electricity. So I suspect copper, gold, silver are going to be the three metals that you'd want to use if you want to experiment with electroculture. So once again, head on over to electro... Uh, no. <laughs> Head on over to Cultivate Elevate on Instagram or CultivateElevate.com. Check out Matt. He's got a bunch of fantastic videos of what electroculture could do for everybody. And that's going to be it for me tonight. It's always the Last Call podcast with Chris Michaels. You know what to do at this point. Like me, find me, share me everywhere you go and everywhere you find your podcast.